Well, you know what? No intro music today because my phone decided to black out on me. So we're just going to wing it off the cuff here. So uh, how you doing tonight, buddy? Uh, good. I was all prepared to do this big you know, intro for myself here. But, you know, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Explorer Seekers of the Truth, episode 18, I believe. Uh, I am Chad Charlesworth. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, best friend, Lesson Cavage. How are you doing tonight, Les? I am great, buddy. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Um, I I guess I'll go through my usual stick here really quick. Uh, We'll bring up the agenda, and we will let everybody know how they could get in touch with us. You could always go to our website at www.explorersgroup.com, or you can find us on Twitter, at Explorers Group, or here on Facebook, facebook.com backslash Explorers Group. So... Tonight, we're pretty excited because we have a very special guest. Tonight, we're going to be talking about the uh, Pacific Northwest Sasquatch Encounters. And tonight's guest is the best person to bring these stories to life. Oh, and before I forget, one other thing that you could do, as I always forget to show this one, is you could comment on Facebook live while we're having our event and it'll pop up in the be live interface and we'll be able to communicate back and forth so if you have any questions for the guest for chad for myself please feel free to post and make a comment so without further ado tonight's guest is a special guest and uh he's he's a kind of a a, a for lack of better terms, and I apologize, Tom, if this if this uh, makes you sound silly, but he's kind of a Sasquatch whisperer in a way because this guy has had some really, really great encounters and some really good experiences. So I'm going to bring him on to the uh, broadcast now. He'll be here shortly. And there we go. I would like to welcome Tom, Thomas Seawood from Sasquatch Island. And uh, he's here to talk to everybody about his stories, a little bit about some upcoming events, uh, some some cool news, and just he's going to talk about what he's going to be up to and what he has been up to. So, Tom, if you uh, if you don't mind, my friend, take it away. Gela greetings to all of you in my tribal language. I belong to the First Nations group in Western Canada, off northeastern Vancouver Island, British Columbia as known as the Kwakwakiwak tribe, uh, otherwise known as Kwagyutl or Kwagyul from the history books. But the Kwakwakiwak is a nation that I grew up being a part of all my life. And I was born in a small island called Alert Bay, which is sort of the Armo de Cosmo, the center of the northern Kwakwakiwak tribes. And uh, right from my earliest memories, I remember totem poles carved with these creatures with outstretched arms, large pendulous breasts, sleepy looking slit eyes, puckered up lips. And you'd see them standing there in the graveyard. And I remember as a little kid, just before dark, walking by one night when I was out too late, I was scared. You know, I was, my little legs were just going as fast as they could to get me past all these big, huge carved figures on these totem poles at the bases. And of course, up at the ceremonial big house, otherwise known to some people as a longhouse, we would participate or witness families holding the great celebrations known as potlatch. And there you would see a family open their box of treasure known as a gildas, the symbolic box of treasure, which the chief and his family have all of their symbolic crests, all of the things they hold title to. And of course, the most valuable crest to own and most families have title to it is Junakwa, 
that wild woman of the woods. And that's what I was seeing on the base of those totem poles. And then seeing them being danced on these dirt floors around a central fire with every massive cedar tree that was carved into crest figures in that big house you'd see in that firelight it's just like being in the spiritual realm as you firelight this fur covered costume dancer come onto the floor with drummers pounding on a hollow cedar log with wooden batons so it's just booming like you're in a thundercloud and in deep baritone voice they're singing in our language of kwakwala and narrating what's taken place on that floor about how an ancestor witnessed seeing a uh, uh, female Sasquatch or a male Sasquatch out on the, the bush or on the beaches. Maybe it had a basket on its back and it had a baby Trunachua in there. But then when you've seen the baskets, you were always remembered and shuddered as a kid because you were taught that if you don't behave yourself, you don't listen to the elders, you'll throw a temper tantrum, lazy, lie. The Junakwa is always watching that female Sasquatch, and she looks at children and she wants them, but as long as you behave, she's not allowed to touch you. But if you misbehave, the Junakwa comes at night and with that big hairy arm, she reaches through the crack of the big house, my grandfather said, or the window, or come into the boat and reach to a porthole, carry out shove you that big hairy arm into a basket or a spruce root sack like a burlap sack and that's where the chonakwa takes the misbehaved children high into the mountains to where invisible home is and that's where she'll boil you up and eat you to the bones so you behave yourself otherwise chonakwa is going to get you so that's why my little legs were going a mile a minute there trying to get by that graveyard as it was getting dark Boy, oh boy, that that's quite the uh, bedtime story. <laughs> I tell you what, I'd be scared as a child if I heard that. Now, let me ask you, you, you said uh, you saw them in the graveyard. Is there any significance to that or is it just where they were? <clears throat> I don't like using, I slip and I use the term totem pole. I really don't like using that because it's so disrespectful to my ancestors because we actually had numerous types of carved pole. We had welcoming poles. Uh, dowry poles that were signifying and part of the gift payments of dowry for marriages that took place at a potlatch. And then when you walked into the villages, you saw those poles, dowry and welcoming poles, but you also saw these massive poles, which were memorial poles carved and raised to tell a story about a chieftain who once led a family or a tribe. And then in modern times, of course, we've the people move the memorial pole into the graveyards because we never traditionally used to bury our dead. We'd lay them out in caves, build little replicas of big houses and put them on islands or put them in an overhang out in the islet somewhere. So when we were told by the new, I guess you could say the Christian Dominion of Canada's government and we have to be Canadian abiding citizens, they deterred us from laying our people to rest traditional and that's when we started using graveyards and of course we brought in our culture and the memorial poles are placed in there so when you go to our communities like uh, Fort Rupert known as Chakis, Alert Bay, Yalise, Campbell River which is uh, Wiwakam and even Wiwakai, Cape Mudge you'll see these great memorial poles in the graveyards with the tombstones and the crosses and they're signifying what they always were 
the memorials to great chieftains or even in some cases matriarchs, high-ranking females. They're not as big, but they're carved all the same. And Campbell River, you know, it's just amazing. You, A lot of people don't know that if you go behind the Superstore Canadian Tire, what used to be Target there, and you go towards the beach behind Superstore, you'll see them, the tribe's burial ground, and they have a beautiful memorial pole. And at the base is a Junako with outstretched arms, pendulous breasts, sleepy eyes. So it's pretty now, neat. Is that, it's, is, that, is that one of the pictures you had sent me? Because I could bring that up if you like. I don't take pictures of the memorial poles and the modern ones. I know I pulled a few old ones from some of the archive stuff and that. But uh, it should be on there. Every time you see a Chunahua at the base of a big pole, that's generally, you know, if it's an older one, it's the memorial pole. Okay, because I have a carving <coughs> of uh, of one with the outstretched arms, and I believe you and your wife are under, standing underneath it. Oh, that's just the sculpture in downtown Seattle. Oh, it's a beautiful right, well, one. Though. I said anything. <laughs> All right. <I'm> <laughs> Go ahead. Go on with your story then. <laughs> yeah. And uh, a lot of people, like, I won't say his name other than he has a capital D, small r period after, before his name. But he had a, I bought one of his books a few years ago and uh, I was lying in bed, painting, and I'm reading this book. And after a couple nights of doing this, I grabbed it and threw it on a nightstand. I'm like, for the love of God, you'd think in this modern day of, no offense, but white man's magic, the internet, we know so much nowadays with a click of a mouse or a touch of our finger that people would understand that you, if you're going to write about or talk about, or do a show about the Kwakwakiwak version of the Sasquatch, you should do your research. And what's better place than to go to our cultural centers like the Umidsta, which is up in Alert Bay, and they have a beautiful website, www.umidsta.ca, U-M-I-S-T-A. And in there, they've our elders that are no longer with us, who are our ancestors now, they sat down when this museum first opened, and still to this day, the elders are putting data in which the workers put onto the website for all kinds of th things pertaining to our culture. Right in there, they define what a Junahua is and what a Bukwas is. And then when you read these books about the Kwakiutl Indians of Northern Vancouver Island call the Sasquatch a Bukwas, no, absolutely not. The Bukwas is a small bipedal creature that's about four feet or shorter. And it's mm. said to move very fast and scurry-like, like a small dicky bird. And it's the keeper of the ghost world, where when you drowned, apparently your ghost goes to where the bus keeps you forever in that ghost world. And it's a very, very lonely place. And so is Bukwus. And if you get lost in the forest and you get a, turned around and all of a sudden you start running and panting and wiping out, running into things, tripping, and you're all afraid and scared, and pretty soon you're hungry, then you're cold, then you're tired, and you lay down, and you go to sleep. When you wake up, bukwus, just like a jonakwa is always watching. Well, a little bukwus comes out while you're sleeping, and he puts a piece of board down, wood, or maybe a piece of Douglas fir bark, which is really big like a platter, when you break it off the rotten trees, and he puts out food. And when you wake up all afraid and cold and hungry, you see this beautiful, delectable delectable treats of our nation. Smoked fish, 
halibut, salmon berries, uh, ooligan oil, which is a fish oil we dip our foods into, maybe some seal meat. Well, you dive into it and you start stuffing it in your mouth because you're so afraid and so hungry. But as you're eating this beautiful food, you notice that as your hand's going in, it's no longer what you saw. The beautiful food is turned into eels and worms, snakes and maggots and bugs, and you spit it out, but it's too late. You've given in to your weakness and temptation. You've eaten ghost food that Bukwes had put out for you. And now when you run and you look through the trees and you see the smoke from your big house fires down below or your boat at anchor, you run down the mountainside trying to get to where you first started. And when you stop and you open the trees again, you realize that you're further back from where you first started and you'll never get back to where you came from. And that's how lonely the Bukwes is and that's how trapped you are forever. And they say it's next to impossible to return to the human world. But one of my third cousins, who's a very, very um, excellent master carver and artist, he was on a documentary quite a few years ago. That's got to be close to 20 years now. But it stuck with me. And that's what Noosa, to tell your story, is all about. It's to be passed on to other generations and other family and friends. Well, I remember when my cousin was talking on that TV show, he said that story about Bukwes and his family's interpretation. Well, he's actually my family too. But he said that nowadays in these modern days, the Bukwes is all around us. It's the alcohol, the gambling, the drug dealers. So don't ever give in to temptation and weakness because if you sample those wares and it gets out of hand, just like it was where you look through the trees, it's going to be impossible to get back to where you got back to where you started from. So it's a good story, that Bukwes, but we have to remember it's from a spiritual realm. And uh, I just so happen to have our Bukwes mask with us. And that's the Bukwes. And the Bukwes, as you're going to read in some books, especially ones that are older publications, They'll say the Kwakwakiwaka, they'll probably spell it as Kwagyutl. I've even seen us written as Kwakatoodles. Kwakwakiwaka is what we are, the Kwakwala-speaking people. And when they refer to the Bukwus being our Sasquatch, they're absolutely wrong. Take your pen, cross it out, and put Chunakwa, either T-Z or D-Z-O-O-N-K-W-A, Chunakwa. That's also lost in translation because it's been translated to mean wild woman of the woods. But the poll you were talking about in Seattle, you might want to bring it up where me and Peggy are standing in front of it. I remember when I first saw it about 10 years ago, I was amazed by it. But it was all covered in moss and lichen. And then when I went down there a few months ago, they had spray washed it and I could then repainted it and I could see it better. And this is the older picture. But when I saw it, I noticed it had a mustache. So the artist did a jonakwa, and it looks like a female because of the large breast and everything, but it has a mustache, and that signifies it's a male jonakwa. Mm. Now, the male jonakwa is really not written about or seen that much in our art. I've only found it in a few rare cave museums. Mm-hmm. But if you museums, you'll see display cases with the jonakwa masks, and you'll see some with fur and mustaches painted on there or else fur. Well, those ones are very, very sacred. When you go to a memorial potlatch and the heir apparent to the new th- to the throne, when he has led the family 
to do everything they needed to do in order to host a memorial potlatch for the fallen chieftain who passed three years or longer before. When he's fed you, danced all the family's crests, um, done everything he had to do, his obligations, that's when the chief speaker, known as a halakam, no stress, he'll just hold it. And that's a male junacha. And he'll ask the audience, does anyone contest this man being the next chief of this family clan? You'll name all the names of the clan and family. And, of course, no one contests. And when he removes that male junacha mask off that man's face, he is now a gekame, a big chief, and will be until he passes on or passes his title to the next heir to the throne. So there is lost in translation. Junacha, wild woman of the woods, well, there's two, male and female, like everything in life. Hmm. How about that? That's pretty awesome. Hmm. Oh, it's in depth. That's why in 2014, when this, he wasn't my friend then, I didn't know him, but this man by the name of Nathan Spence, he started a Facebook group called Sasquatch Island. Back then, I wasn't even looking at Facebook. You know, I was too busy out doing my thing, working, commercial fishing, going out in the bush, building a sea kayak resort for my tribe. So I was out in the bush. We had Wi-Fi, though. But anyway, I met this guy at the 2014 Sasquatch Summit in Ocean Shores, Washington. And uh, we hit it off right away, me, him, and Peggy. And that's when he told me to join Sasquatch Island. So I did. And he said it's in reference to Vancouver Island because there's so many Sasquatches here. Everyone's got stories. And I said, yeah, well, Vancouver Island's the highest concentration of carved wooden Sasquatches on Earth. There's thousands of different artifacts, modern, ancient, new, that are still being made, be it memorial poles, welcoming poles, Masks and galleries for sale to collectors, T-shirts, carvings owned by all the families to be shown in their potlatches or in tourist displays when we have events. And there's so many Sasquatches in Vancouver Island. As soon as you get off the ferry in Victoria, you go up to the town and city and you're greeted by welcoming poles or big poles of Chonokha. You go in the museum, it's just filled with them. And every other town and museum all the way up Vancouver Island, it's like that. So... It was a good name, calling Vancouver Island Sasquatch Island. So about a year and a half, two years go by, and in November of 2016, I'm surfing on the internet, Facebook, and I thought, I'll go check out Nason's group, Sasquatch Island. I did a couple posts on there about our Junahua and Bukwas. When I went there, there was an icon flashing up top. It said, this group needs an administrator. And I looked yeah. down, and it had... 42 members and I thought oh boy it's not getting a lot of traffic well, I better click that administrator button I don't know if it was a curse or good for me but I clicked it anyway I became the administrator and I started putting stuff in about Jonah and my experiences my encounters and then pretty soon every day I noticed more and more people were joining and then I started using white man's magic the most powerful tool on earth the internet and I started shopping it out there hey you should join Sasquatch Island. Hey, you should check out my post on Sasquatch Island. And now here we are at, I think, almost 3,200 or 3,300 members right now. And I hear from a lot of people, and it's very humbling. It's, you know, it's an honor to hear people when they say, that's one of the best groups out there. And I'm like, well, yeah, because I don't put up with the woo-woo and all the uh, religious BS that tries to get 
mixed up in Sasquatchology. You know, so what I do is I got a picture of a Sasquatch sitting on a toilet laughing away. I'll give people three strikes, but the third strike, I'll post their picture and I'll post the picture of the Sasquatch taking a dump. And everyone knows that in 24 hours, that person's kicked out of the group, blocked by me. So I don't have to listen to their whining afterwards. And they've been flushed. And that's what Bush World is all about. You say what you mean, you mean what you say. And I just, oh, it just turns my stomach when I see some of those people. I feel like grabbing a 10-pound chunk of cheese and throwing at them when they start whining and bitching, saying, you want some wine with your cheese? And some of these girly men out there, man, I tell you, they're pretty tough when they're on that mouse behind the screen. But boy, can they ever bitch and moan about stuff. And that's wrong. It's got to stop. We're a community. But like, exactly, like a community, yeah. a tribe, a bushman, you got to be a captain like I am for commercial fish boats for most of my life. And the bush boss that I was again, you got to say what it's like. And you got to basically verbally slap them upside the head with a four by four. That's the way I look at it. And tell them to shut up, smarten up, or else you get flushed. And that's what Sasquatch Island's all about. It's a very informative Facebook group on Sasquatch Bigfoot, but it's also a no BS place. And, uh, you know, come in there, have fun. Yeah, the captain might berate you and tear a strip off you verbally, but, you know, just be cool about it. Don't talk back because that's one thing you never do to a captain. You never talk back. I remember times on fish boats where I'd bite my tongue when I'd see a crewman talk back. Ooh, we can get it now. And the captain would go berserk. <laughs> now, speaking of, of your time as a fish boat captain and everything, do you want to, can you talk about some of your encounters while you were on some of your tours and, uh, some of your time as a Bushman and stuff like that. Uh, do you want to get into those encounter talks now? Sure. It's now that, you know, I'm 52, you know, gray hair, losing my hair, long in the tooth. And it wasn't until 19, early 90s, I was on my commercial fish boat. And we had a, a four-day window until the salmon seine opening was going to take place first part of October. So me and my girlfriend at the time and two of my crewmen, we went into village island where i'd been working as a native watchman through the summers doing a tour operation after the tribe stopped paying us for being watchmen i continued on on my own and we anchored up and we went pulled a bunch of crab traps and we had a propane stove on the hatch covers on deck and we had you know probably about five gallons of crabs cooking you know we're gonna eat eat properly you don't buy one you go out and harvest a bunch and as it's cooking, you know, the gas stoves, how they make that hiss and roar noise, and the crabs are bubbling away. And me and my crewman, Dean, are just sitting on deck, having a cigarette. Just got dark, so we're just enjoying the viewscape and everything and tranquility of being out in bush water world. And you could hear my girlfriend and my engineer, Trevor, playing crib and arguing away in the galley. And all of a sudden, you hear Trevor, hey, Jojo, let me have a cigarette, please. She starts bitching away at him. Ah, Trevor, what did you spend all your money on booze and partying on the weekend? Should have bought cigarettes. You knew we were coming out. Oh, come on, just give me a smoke, Joe. So he gives, she gives him one. And at that same time on the beach, my 26-foot trailer with a wood addition was up on that anchorage, native anchorage. Lived there for many years in the summertime and into the fall. And all of a sudden, you just heard a bang, like wood, a hand against, or something against tin. Well, you're not going to jump to conclusions. First thing I thought was, oh, it must be one of the five-gallon kerosene tanks underneath the trailer. That must have 
contracted because of the cooling of the evening. And it went, bang. That's what I thought right away. And then all of a sudden, you heard that whistle chirp. A whistle chirp with, like, lips. And your memory banks are going, what is that? Screech owl, bard's owl, fart owl. You know, what is that? And mink, it, you couldn't, I couldn't place it. And all of a sudden, now, all this yachba, that big stink come. Oh, it wanted to make you gag. And it smelled like, a lot of people go, what do they smell like? I'm like, well, you know, when you're in a city and that person with a shopping cart goes by you, clanging and jingling all their property, and you know they haven't had a shower in Lord knows how long? Well, you know that rotten, sour human smell you get? Well, that times 20, and that's the smell of a Sasquatch. And that's what we smelled. So right away, I'm thinking, oh, geez. And then we saw two shadows go across the front of that light-colored tra trailer at night. So I went into the galley door and opened it. And I said, hey, you two, turn that music down. I said, something's on the beach. So they came outside, and I'm at the railing again, Dean standing there. And he had just said, Sakwa, after I said, Chunakwa. That was in his language, meaning a Sasquatch, because he's native as well, but Trevor wasn't. And Jojo, they're both non-native. But when they walked out, Jojo come up to me and she goes, boy, the beat stinks tonight. And Dean looked at her and goes, Josie, when have you ever smelled a beat smell like that? And they used to dig clams together as teenagers to make money. And Dean goes, and besides that, it's almost high tide. So the beach wasn't exposed. And she caught it close to me and she goes, Tom, what is it? And I said, I think we got a couple Jonah on the beach. And she goes, no. And I said, smell it. And then Trevor, he's smoking a cigarette and it's not even half gone. And he looks at me and he's got this big nose and big buck teeth. And he's, oh, what is that, Tom? And I said, remember in 91 when we had that thing run behind the trailer? I think it's back. Sasquatch. Trevor flicked his cigarette overboard. Went to the galley, down the engine room. We heard the door open and slam, and that was the last we saw of him. He didn't want nothing to do with it because he was with me a few years beforehand when we spooked something behind that trailer when we came in after a long period not at the trailer, and something got up and ran. We smelled it, but we didn't see it. He didn't admit to me. He actually saw it going through, and it was on two legs, hairy. So that was when I saw it, I was, when we encountered it. So after a few minutes... Dean's like, hey, let's go light them up. You know, a big spotlight on a fish boat. It's about 12 inches in diameter. Who knows, who knows how many million candle watt. So we go up to the wheelhouse, and I'm grabbing the handle on the ceiling, and I'm moving it. And Dean's looking outside, and he goes, okay, down, left, right. He goes, yeah, it should be about lined up now. And then all four, of, or all three of us, I go, three, two, one, and I hit the switch. And it lit up that beach. And there was two hair-covered bipedal creatures. One had its back to us that was low down on the beach. It dropped into a fetal position on its knees with its hands up by its head. So its buttocks were facing us. And the other one up above, a little higher, above the high tide, in standing in grass that was almost five feet high. And this thing was a good three feet or four feet higher than that. Dropped on one, pulled its arm up in front of its face and hid in the grass. But in the, you could see the one eye peeking under that right armpit of the one fetal position on the beach, reflecting yellowish orange. But the one up on the beach, the bigger one, reflecting red, orange, red, orange. And you get two eyes and a one and a half eye and one eye and two eyes. As it was, I guess it was breathing and its arm was going up and down. 
And we're like, holy Christ. And right away, that's a deer, eh? <laughs> yeah, no, that's a deer. Yep. Yeah, I think it was Dean who said, well, shit, Tommy, that's no freaking deer. <laughs> you know damn well what it is. So we had it in spotlight. And I looked at JoJo like, hey, get the camera. So you hear her digging through the galley drawers and she comes up. She goes, I got the camera. And I said, well, take some pictures. And she grabs it. She goes out and does her thing and pushes the button, looks at it, comes to the light. No film. I said, well, go find a roll of film. It's 35 millimeter. She's digging through drawers, swearing like a blogger. She comes up. There's no film. I'm like, damn. And I'm just looking. And we actually started jumping up and down and tending to throw things, trying to get these things to move, but they wouldn't. They were just stoic. And then after about, I guess, over 20 minutes, I'm thinking, okay, I'm on a boat that was built in 1927, wood seine boat. And who knows last time those batteries were ever changed because it's a company boat, not my own. And uh, I'm thinking, geez, if those batteries go down and because of that spotlight on and the other lights on the boat, and I try to push that button, and that motor doesn't turn over, and that big son of a bitch is swimming out to us. We're in a world of trouble. So I'm just like, yeah, okay, we'll leave him alone. And I shut the spotlight off and hollered downstairs to Trevor to push the button, start the motor. Thank Christ, she's turned over right away. And, you know, I'm going to charge my batteries for an hour or more. So JoJo goes to bed. Trevor's downstairs in the cruise quarters. Me and Dean have stayed on deck and went inside, have coffee, tea, or whatever. We weren't drinking alcohol because we we're going to be fishing in a few days. And then after an hour and a bit, I shut the motor off. And we went back on deck. Oh, actually, before, when we turned the lights off, you could hear them move through the grass and then into the forest. You could hear the branches being moved and click, clack, crack. You know, they weren't being stealthy by any means. They were making a lot of noise as they were going through. Not like a D8 cat going through the bush, but they were making a pretty pile of noise. Then all of a sudden you heard this big, big rotten tree got pushed down. Probably about a, the next day when he went in there, I think it was about a six inch diameter rotten hemlock tree that it had pushed down. Another primate characteristic, but that's what we heard. But then after we turned the motor off and on deck, we were sitting there and looking, listening, nothing. Couldn't smell anything. But then all of a sudden, uh, we call it a heron, a big crane otherwise known as a shag poke called a blue heron they sleep at night standing up usually on docks or on log booms or on rocks on the beach but if you spook them or an animal spooks them they sound like a pterodactyl they're rah, 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 as they fly from where they got spooked and you just see this big dark shadow going overhead like a pterodactyl making a squawk well we heard that come out of the head of the bay and, you know, right away it tells you, you know, something spooked it. So we're listening yeah. and listening. And then you could hear that <laughs> footsteps on rocks. Well, the head of native Anchorage is don't, we're probably 150, 180 yards anchored out from the head at low, and now the tide's falling. And these boulders are in a stream, and the rest of the beach is all mud sand. That bugger was walking down that exposed stream, walking on those big boulders in like a trench. We put the spotlight on. We couldn't see nothing. Shut it off. You could hear it again. Then you could hear that as it went across the soft ground. And what it did was it cut across the bay to where we were anchored out. 
were parallel on the beach, and we weren't 80 feet from the beach, 60, 80 feet, because there's no wind, and we're on a 48-foot uh, wooden seine boat. And all of a sudden, I think this we couldn't see it or hear it. Then all of a sudden, I just couldn't mistake this rock outcropping, and behind it I was gravel and clam sands. You just saw this big black head shape and shoulders look like a 45 gallon drum and a half wide and stick up. And, and I'm just like, holy smokes. <laughs> and I'm like, Dean, you see that? And Dean's like, yeah, I see that, Tommy. And then all of a sudden it stays there for a while, then it disappears. And you could hear little rustling of salal bushes and then the odd little twig crack. And then you saw this big black shadow come onto the rock beach at high tide and move towards us and into the bush again, it disappear and you hear a bit of rustling, a little bit of cracking, then it come out again. And that's when I realized that son of a bitch, he knows that bush like I do. He, wherever those big slough patches are, that's noisy. He's coming out onto the beach. And when he gets past the slough patch, he goes back into the hemlocks. And when he gets the next slough patch, he was stalking, coming in on us. And the third time he come on the beach, he was crouched real low, but taking these long strides. And now he's parallel and right beside our my port midships. And we're not 80 feet off that beach. And there's this big crouching thing going across the beach. At this point, I got the side stays coming off my mast and boom, down to the bulwark, my port side. I got my galley door to my right, which I open. And I'm sort of half behind the galley door. I got Dean in front of me, which I made sure was there, and the side stays there. I thought, if that son of a gun going to throw a rock or a stick, it's going to hit the side stays, Dean, or the door. It's not going to hit me because I'm going in to get my 12-gauge. <laughs> and at this what I'm doing is I'm looking, and all I'm thinking is, like, damn, that thing's big. And all of a sudden, Dean goes, what the fuck is that? And, Oops, I shouldn't have said the F-bomb on radio. Sorry, the Christian people. Yeah, but anyway, that thing stood up, and all I remember is that hairs hanging off his left arm and he just and he stood up and he just strode like that and i was just like jesus that thing's huge and i ran to the wheelhouse through the galley and crashing and banging you know it's in there a small boat hit that spotlight swung it and i'm looking out my port window as i'm swinging the spotlight it illuminates its back and that one picture we see from a supposed trail camera of a back of a big Sasquatch that you see the long hairs, grayish brown, and you can see the skin behind it. That's uh -huh. damn bloody well what I saw in that spotlight. And that thing reached up, grabbed that alder tree, that alder tree about four inches, five inches wide, bent, and it stood up onto the bank, looked over kind of like that, and it just went in. You let go of that tree and it kind of shook and you see some leaves start to fall and then it just went into the slough and you could hear it just like a d8 cat now just pushing through the slough bushes and then you heard that whistle chirp again deep and then way inside the bush at the head of the bay you heard a higher pitched whistle chirp and then you heard it and i thought son of a gun that was something so it was about an hour and a half we witnessed it Man, I tell you, I've, I was, didn't sleep that much that night, I tell you. That was spooky. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't either. You know, it's interesting when you um, – and, and I had spoke to you uh, a couple days ago uh, before we, you know, brought you onto the show. And one of the things that really intrigued me is I, I've heard your stories on a, a couple different podcasts. 
And it wasn't until I had seen a video on YouTube that someone was interviewing you. And when I heard you, uh, when they asked you to recreate that whistle chirp, I, I almost immediately got like the chills and, and, and it was almost like a flashback experience because as I had told you before, I, I had previously lived on a property that I felt had some activity. And I don't want to say it was a Bigfoot or anything like that, but I can't explain what the hell was going on <clears throat> while I lived there. And one of the sounds that I had experienced, and fortunately I was not, I was not able to get that, <clears throat> excuse me, on uh, recorded. But um, both my wife and I heard this sound. It was usually when we'd be coming home late at night. Now, the place that we lived had a big open uh, yard in the front, probably the size of three football fields. And in the center of that yard was a giant chestnut tree. And that thing would produce uh, nuts in the fall. And the activity in this area seemed to always pick up during the fall as well. And, and one night we came home, it was probably between midnight and one o'clock in the morning and when we were getting out of the car we only had our our one little daughter at the time and uh we get her out of the car she's sleeping we're getting ready to go in and out of the blackness now we had a tiny porch light that we we, we would leave on when we left and it was the the it was kind of like the old style from the 70s with that like yellowy amber color you know light shade so it didn't illuminate much it only went you know a few feet from the porch and the yard was pitch black and we heard this, this same exact sound as what you had described or what you recreated. And I tell you what, it was so loud and so just God awful frightening. I swear, like I was terrified. We both looked at each other and we're like, what the hell was that? And we booked it to the front door and, and, and we, we went in the house and we probably heard that two other times. And it was just, very hard to explain and i didn't think bigfoot at first i thought it had to have been a migratory bird and i almost thought it, it, it kind of in a way resembled a bald eagle which we do get them migrate through from time to time but it was just so different and when i heard you made that make that sound i'm like my god that's exactly what i heard uh, i love that story and i tell you that just kind of put a different spin on the way I look at that property and the way I, ha I look at that experience. And it was crazy. Oh, they're out there. It's like, I like I lived in Bush for over 30 years, you know, as a hunting guide for quite a few years, you know, I was based on a big yacht, but uh, you know, I was in Bush day in, day out. I was out in Bush. Even at nighttime, I was out scouting and uh, then I'd winter time when hunting season was over, I'd go watch logging camps. All loggers go home for Christmas. You know, I'd sit there after bear hunting and go, geez, okay, what are you going to do with all this money you got in your hand, Tom? Oh, well, by mid-January, you'll be flat-busted, broke Indian again. And then I got offered the opportunity to go watch this logging camp that day. And I thought, hey, I'll save money. I'll make money. So I went in and I watched this logging camp all by myself and fell in love with it. So I do it whenever I can. I haven't done it recently, but... That's what I did, and then summertime I was doing my tourism thing, and when I wasn't doing that, I was out there fishing or just poking about gunk holing. But after my encounter, I still wasn't what you'd call an investigator. I'm just yeah. having fun because Wes Germer doesn't like the term researcher, so I use an <laughs> investigator. <laughs> so I was out investigating, and, you know, I wasn't, I mean. And then after my sighting, when I went back to Vancouver Island, I went to my parents' house that live in a small city, a town, and uh, 
told my dad. My dad's like, oh, gee, that's funny. He goes, remember so-and-so I worked with saw a Sasquatch on the highway up north? And I'm like, yeah. He goes, well, I told uh, little Norman. He was a cousin of mine, but my father's nephew. Back then, he was probably about nine years old, ten years old. He told him the story about his fellow, this Sasquatch, mid-afternoon on the bank north of Campbell River. And well, little Norman went to school, and he wrote a story on it, and got up in front of his class and told everyone. And uh, I guess it was a week of them studying Sasquatches, and the school invited in this guy by the name of Dr. John Bindernagel. And my little cousin, my dad's nephew, got up and goes, oh, my uncle saw one, and he told his version of the story. And, well, well, who's your uncle? Alvin Seawood. He lives in Qualicum Beach. Well, John Vinderdagel looked in the phone book because back then half of Vancouver Island was in one phone book and yeah. found my dad's address and drove down, banged on the door. And my dad answered, you know, John's, oh, hi, I'm Dr. John Vinderdagel. I'm here. I'm a Sasquatch Bigfoot researcher. And my dad said, you know, he said, I don't know who the hell this white guy was who showed up on my doorstep, showing me this, shoving this big plaster Sasquatch cast in my face. He said, come on in. I'll give you a coffee or tea. And he said, this man's a really nice man, Tom. You better go see him. He wants you will want to record your encounter. So I've got a hold of Dr. John Bindernagel. I went and met him. And, and right away, it's, you know, that was the first time I ever met him. And who would know that a lifetime friendship would start because of that? And John and I, we uh, managed after he'd recorded my story, put it in his first book. And then, of course out in the bush going on research or investigations and uh, we had a lot of fun and uh, I remember one time with John out in the Broughton Archipelago, Knights Inlet area we're anchored out in a boat in this bay listening for night sounds, we had trail primitive trail cameras he brought they had looked like railway tracks for pressure pads and these 35 millimeter wind them up with flash cubes, whatever but we had them set up, we're in this bay and we had a one or two beer and uh, all of a sudden I'm sitting there listening for night sounds, whistle chirps, hoots, whoops, whatever, roars. And all I could hear is this ringing, hissing noise. I'm like, what the hell is it? Go inside the boat, check the radios, make sure they're all off, check the radar, check the engine compartment. I'm like, what the hell? And I'm sitting there trying to listen to this hissing. All of a sudden I realized... John Vindernagel's hearing aids. He's got them cranked right up, and he's snoring away sleeping. <laughs> I give him a little boot. John, turn your damn hearing aids on. That's all I can hear right now. And he's laughing away. <laughs> yeah, I had a lot of fun with my buddy. Sure, sure. I can't say it's sad he's gone. Yeah, of course, it's sad he's gone. But, you know, he burned so brightly in his lifetime, and he burned so very, very long. And he's left us with uh, stuff that just unreal as far as research into those creatures. You know, even every time I went to see him, he was always throwing one of these in my hand. This is a plaster cast. Tom, you got to have this one. This one's pretty unique. It's one of five casts on a trackway that John had heard about this guy on Vancouver Island had. Well, John being the tracker he tracked this guy down and he went to a garage or whatever in his property digging around yeah i got him here somewhere i'll sell them to you and found four of the five tracks that they casted on this trackway on uh newcastle ridge west of the town of sayward on vancouver island 
Well, I used to live in Sayward from 2000 to 2007. And my, that's where I first had my kids. They're young there. And uh, right above our house on top of this mountain is where this hunter had come across in this mud, these five or more tracks, but he cast the five good ones that were in the best part of the run and only found four. John bought them off him and he made duplicates. But when he showed me and gave me that plaster cast, that wasn't what a year ago. When this last a year ago, when snow was on the ground, I was there with a friend of mine, Paul McDonald from the Lower Mainland, who I took out investigating. And anyway, we stopped to see John, and John gave me that cast. He said, "You should have it because that one's from right above your house." I looked at it and I said, "Son of a gun! I've seen that track a few times." I said, "I know that bugger. That's the one that chased me out of my sea kayak camp." And in 2006, I took my sister and two of my workers that were young fellas, teenager and one guy in his early 20s from Holland. This one guy, a native kid, was the younger. The two, he was about 17. But we were in my kayak camp, which is five cabins that are made of red cedar to look like native-style longhouses with native orca designs painted on the front. Well, it's right on the Johnson Straits, the Orca Highway. So you sit there in bed looking over your toes or with the doors open, and you see orcas going back and forth, humpback whales breaching them, blowing, cruise ships going back and forth, and all kinds of salmon there. And it used to be my sea kayak camp. Now it's my Sasquatch research camp because there's so many damn hairy buggers there. But <laughs> while we were there, I went had a group coming in and the tides fluctuate. So we had a big tide cycle and all the logs. And you gotta remember our logs aren't pecker poles. Some of our logs are pecker pole size to ones that are eight foot thick at the root ball. So they had drifted in these big logs had drifted into my beach. And so I went there with the biggest Husqvarna chainsaw you can buy. I used to call it my separator, separated the men and boys. And you ran that thing, if you could even get it started. I started cutting all this driftwood up. My workers are pushing it aside, and then when the high tide was coming at night, we we're going to push it out so it left the bay. So I went through two full tanks of gas, and all of a sudden the saw sputtered out, and I put it down, and I'm pouring sweat. I hollered at one of my workers, give me a Pepsi. Give me a Pepsi. I cracked it, took off a can of drink, and I sat down in one of those fold-up chairs. I put my drink into the drink holder and looked out at what I'd just accomplished, and then all of a sudden you two trees started shaking like uh, when you see those real spooky movies and fast that's what it looked like these two trees are shaking and I looked and I looked at my golden lab cross bush mutt who at this time was six years old well-trained bush dog better than most hunting dogs you'll ever come across I'm like land claims get them called them land claims his whole name was land claims treaties now everywhere my dog he lifted his leg and took a pee us Indians are claiming it back so land claims went taken off up this rock outcropping. Thought you'd like that. And land claims gets up to these two shaken trees and he looks. And he's like 15 feet above the forest floor now. And he just springs. Oof. Does a 180 in midair. Hits the ground. And he's just a blonde golden lab streak going by me with his tail between his legs. And this is a dog that was trained. If he saw a bear, he'd run at it and look at me. And I'd go, spin bear. And he'd chase that bear, nipping at his tail, spinning the bear. And what that was for was hell of a lot of good fun for him. But it, he was trained to do that until I got out of the way, down the trail a bit, or down the beach, or in my boat. And then I'd whistle, land claims, come. And he'd leave the bear alone and run back to me. 
So he was trained to spin bears, grizzlies included. So he wasn't scared of nothing, but whatever this was, it scared him. And as he's running, I'm looking and my workers and my sister, who's a concrete Indian, 10 years younger than me, she was just up for the weekend. Concrete Indian means they don't know nothing about the bush and uh, kind of stupid. But anyway, she's all freaked out. Like, what is that? And all of a sudden, this big boulder. That boulder had to be half the size of a big couch for four people. It just comes boof, boof, boof down this 15-foot bank into my camp where my cookhouse is. And the whole back wall, three walls of my cookhouse is all sliding glass doors. And I'm just like, you know, I'm not worried about my doors. I'm like, what the hell did that? So I'm thinking, okay, Bush, go to Bush. And gun. And the young Indian kid, he's like, your gun's out on the boat. I had my 32-foot, 12-passenger aluminum tour boat anchored in the bay. And we had lines going to it to keep it so it's, bow was straight into the waves because there's a little bit quite a bit of wind that night and i'm like damn gun's not here i'm like well give me something axe machete and i'm looking at these trees and this rock it's just starting to settle down and right away bush instinct don't just look at what's getting your attention look around so i start looking around and i look behind the cookhouse and there between the cedar and hemlock trees and the v standing something looking at me and just looking straight at my eyes, and all of a sudden, <sighs> I just like, holy smokes. You could have shoved a chunk of coal at my arse. I swear to God, 10 minutes later, that thing would have been a diamond. That thing scared the hell out of me. Its teeth were like big, huge chiclets. And I could see its tendons and its muscles and its hair. And I was just like, holy shit. And I'm like, Louise, get the skiff. The little rowboat. We had two of them on the beach. My sister, she's like, oh, and she runs down the beach where land claims is sitting in the duck punt, which is sitting on a bunch of driftwood, which is now floating because it's high tide. Well, my sister does Jesus Christ. She starts running on this driftwood in the water. She thinks she can walk on water, and she's flailing. And so I'm like, slow down. You'll break your leg. And I'm like, give me that goddamn axe. And they give me an axe or a machete, and I'm like, you two getting that other punt. I'm trying to keep my six on my crew, and you know, the, the no gun, and I look back and the trees are just moving where this thing was. And the first thing that comes to my mind is, oh, shit, where the hell is it? And I look up the bank and the two trees are still going. I'm like, start back walking in the water. And I get into the duck punt, which is a rectangle square duck punt. Everyone knows what they are. You can get them at Cabela's and Bass Pro Shop. And uh, plug, plug. No, just kidding. (laughs) What happened? My sister, as soon as I get in the punt, she grabs the line going to the back of my boat from a tied to a tree and she starts pulling it well she's almost capsizing us I'm like louise slow down you're gonna capsize us and i start pulling and so now we're you know we're going sideways getting out to my boat and we were a good six seven feet from the swim grid of my tour boat and land claims the mighty bush dog he just does this leap hits the swim grid halfway ass in the water this claw is like a cat. Gets on a swim grid, goes through the deck of the boat and through the open door. I get the boat secure on my sister, and I go in. I'm going to get my 338, and it's up in the bow and sleeping compartment. So I go up there, and there's mighty land claims in the corner shaking away with this look like, get me the hell out of your boss. And I'm like, this ain't good. So I grab the 338 and come out, put three down, one in the tube, rock it. Uh, you guys get those boats secure, cut the sidelines. And I start to the motors as I walk through with my gun. And I'm just standing there looking. I don't want to shoot it. 
you know, it's, I'm out in the boat now. I'm safe, but I'm letting it know. I'm like thinking, you know, got my gun now. We'll just stay out here for a bit. We'll go back and be dark pretty soon. We'll go to sleep in the cabins. Oh, good luck on that. No one wanted any idea of that. Louise is, no, oh, you get me out of here, Tommy. You get me out of here right off and down. I'm <laughs> never coming to the bush again. So I left the bay and I took a, you know, yelled at them. And guys can have the camp tonight. It's my camp. I'll be back tomorrow. I went around the corner and there was a big ship that was anchored out derelict that was used as a breakwater for a logging landing where they sort logs in the water that they dump in from the land. Well, I was going to tie up there. Well, my sister had no, 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 you know, to go back to Sayward, go back to Sayward. I'm like, Louise is flowing 35 westerly. It's a big ebb tide. I said, those waves out there are mountains. I said, it's not safe to go down there, especially before dark. I can take my legs out if I hit a log. I can blow the windows in like I did before. We could sink. It's not safe. I'm not going to Sayward. She doesn't want me to go there. They're not going back to camp. I'm thinking, what the hell am I going to do? So I thought, okay. So I start working my way halfway across Johnson Straits. Now I get into this good cell tone because back then I had a bag cell phone. So I phoned my dad up, told him what just happened. And I told him to phone Adam Dick. Adam Dick is a chief of the Kwakwakiwak from uh, one tribe up in Kinkum Inlet area. And, uh, He's also the guy that that book, The Owl Called My Name, and the movie was done about. So he's 88 now, and he's my family's chief speaker, but he's my advisor. So I tell my dad, phone Adam and ask him, why the hell these damn Sasquatches, the Junoha, keep picking on me? I'm getting sick and tired of them picking out of my kayak camp. So I hung up, and all of a sudden, I'm going over these waves and they're doing like 10, 12 foot drops in these big holes and it's almost dark. And I look at my sister, I go, see why I can't go to Sayward? Those waves will be three times bigger than this. And she's all white knuckled, hanged on, all freaked out concrete Indian. <laughs> I make it to Port Neville and there's a government dock there with the, at the time was the oldest operating post office in British Columbia. And uh, I tie up to the dock and, the lady who's a very devout Christian, a very good friend of mine. And, you know, Christians are like, you can't be too forward with them. You know, they, you don't want to make them, you know, upset or mad because God forbid, they'll never leave you alone. And anyway, she comes down and I told her what happened. She goes, Oh, your sister can sleep in my daughter's room. She's not here. And my sister, Oh, we will stay on the boat. I would love to have a beer with him. But here is the beer. We drink 10 when we go out and have one. <laughs> so anyway, uh, this woman, I go up to the house. She goes, I'll give you guys some blankets. Like, we're wet. You remember my, my sister just pulled, tried to pull Jesus Christ walking across the water. She's soaked. We got no clothes. It's all back at the camp. So we're all wet and everything. So I go up to the house to grab these blankets. And as she's giving them to me, she just goes, oh, I hate those big hairy things. Oh, I hate them. And I know that being a devout Christian, you don't want to talk about it, you know, and I didn't, you know, I didn't want to get her afraid either. And, uh, but she definitely had her run-ins. This is a bushwoman. She's tough. She's uh, well known that when her daughter was about five or six, a cougar jumped out of a fruit tree and grabbed her daughter. She beat that cougar off with a broom, saved her daughter's life. So that's what I mean by when I hear these whiny, bitchy, girly men on Facebook and social media whining and bitching that I want to throw a five pound block of cheese at them to go with their wine. You know, we're tough. 
you know, you live out in that bush and you got to put up with animals. You got to put the main thing you got to put up with is your fear. There's nothing worse than fear. When you get yeah. so scared, when you hear Sasquatches like I have roaring down the channel, not a mile from your cabin, and you're all by yourself, the only thing you got is bouncing Betty, your 12 gauge, and your 30 30, and you hear this big, you pluck your fingers in your ears and you go, la, 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 la. I don't hear that. I don't hear that. Go to sleep, Tom. Go to sleep. And then the next thing you know, you wake up because those son bitches are cracking and smacking in the plum trees behind your trailer that used to be from the old farm that was there that's a band well no longer there but the trees are with fruit you know your throat gets dry and when you hear that thing about your knees shake when you get afraid of the big huge hairy buggers oh your knees be shaking you shove a chunk of coal up your scared butt to be a chunk of time in 10 minutes flat i tell you you're so stressed <laughs> that's great <laughs> Now, do you, have, do you have any other stories about encounters and or sightings that you have had? Um, it's those are the good ones. It's just like I say, being fifty two now, I look back and I sit with my common law wife Peggy here in Kent, Washington. I've been here for over a month, and you know, I sat there the other night and I said, you know what? I think about some of those times I'm out in the bush by myself, and them buggers are around me a lot of times. You know, like I remember how many times with a couple other guys clam digging, usually the winter clam tides don't happen till dark, nighttime. So you go on a beach and there's a big low tide and you go out with your kerosene lantern, your clam gun, which is a four-tongue pitchfork, and uh, buckets or sacks and rain gear and boots. And you go out and get down on your knees and you just start digging and that's a separator, a clam gun, boy. That separates men and boys real quick. You don't know what a sore back is until you dug 500 pounds of clams in one tide. And you go to these beaches, and you don't get, remember, you're out in the middle of Timbuk freaking nowhere. You know, no one out there. It's wintertime. There ain't no tourists. There ain't no kayak. There ain't no one living out there. You're in the middle of Timbuk freaking nowhere because you know the beaches hopefully will be bountiful of clams because you're digging so hard. You don't want to get a place, and you got to dig 20 scoops to get one clam. You want to go to a place and dig 10 scoops, break into the clam lair, and every scoop is 5 to 15 clams. That's a good, bountiful beach. So you go to these beaches in the middle of Timbuk freaking nowhere, and all of a sudden you're flashing around looking for the squirts and the good place to kneel down and set up. And All of a sudden you notice a hole from the tide before where something had dug and footprints. And of course, oh, yeah, what's been a bear? Yeah, bear. Yeah, bear dug the clams. I've never seen a bear eat a clam in my life, nor have I ever seen him dig for one. <laughs> but, you know, you say that to make yourself feel good. And, you know, oh, there's a good story. Go ahead. There is this dude. He was clam digger guy. He's a hippie white guy. Hated society. Either that or his picture was on a milk box or something. But he, <laughs> and uh, he was always clam digging. And he, that's how he made his living. You know, and uh, tough as nails. He'd be all by him lonesome. And, you know, sometimes you got to remember, you anchored up in a sheltered bay, but it's still blowing 50, 60 knots southeast or northwest outflow. So he's always doing this digging. So one time we're drinking. I always remember he was, he was real skin flint, tight with his buddy and his beer. And he'd come on. We're out getting native food fish prawns. And we anchored up at nighttime. We're at this floating resort for sports fishing that he was a watchman at. Oh, he could smell the beer and he seen that. I made sure I 
pop my bottle of whiskey out. Oh, that's a nice bottle. I put it away. Kept teased them. Oh, it took about two, three hours. Tom, come on. I haven't had a beer in weeks, man. Let me have a beer. Nope. <laughs> Having my beer. Ah, boy, it tastes good. And then I cracked that whiskey and give everyone a shot. Dan, he's a squirming. Come on, Tom, give me a drink. And I'll tell you what. Every time I ask you about Sasquatch Bigfoot, you say they don't exist. I think you're full of BS. You can enjoy whiskey with me, but you start telling me stories about the big fellas right now, and I don't care if you BS. You just tell me stories. Oh, he started chatter, 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 just like a Sasquatch. He had all <laughs> kinds of stories about this person, that person. But the only one he had about himself was he was in a place called Boogie Bay. As soon as he said that, I could feel a hair stand up on the back of my neck because in 91, loggers got chased out of there, building logging road and setting the cut block, the roads in place. The, just like that uh, when uh, Patterson and Gimlin went down, I hear the stories about that logging camp that had, f you guys call them 55 gallons. We call them 45 gallon drums, but they're throwing down the banks and coils of rope and toolboxes strewn about. Same thing was happening in these logging guys in this boogie bay. And ended up, that road crew ended up leaving. They said they ain't going to finish the contract. Big fellas just chased him out. But he mentioned, he goes, I went to Boogie Bay, anchored up, went ashore at night. And he goes, you know, Boogie Bay at low tide is all nice sand. I said, yeah, what are you digging cockles for? Because you're not allowed to dig cockles commercially in Canada. It's against the law. It's native food. And he looked at me, oh, I was digging clams. I'm like, there ain't no clams in Boogie Bay. It's all cockles. Well, everyone knows that the cockles, the favorite food of the Sasquatch and the Bukwis. Well, he starts telling the story. He's out there. And it's bigger than a football field when it's low tide down there from the water's edge to the tree line. I'm in the middle of the beach where the eelgrass is. And I said, I know it. And you damn well, you lying bugger. You're going after the cockles. Anyway, I was digging clams. He goes, you want to hear the story or not? Because I want another shot of that whiskey. He goes. <laughs> so he starts talking. He said, had my coal oil lantern. So everyone calls it coil, even though we use kerosene. And uh, he said, uh, digging away, and all of a sudden I heard something. I looked up. That was the biggest long-legged black bear I ever seen in my life walked by me. He just looked at me. And he was just inside my light. And he just walked by me looking at me. And he showed me his teeth. That big, long-legged black bear, he just kept walking out of my light. I never saw him again. <laughs> and I thought, you BS there. I said, when's a black bear going to be awake in the wintertime out on a beach? They're all denned up, hibernating. I said, you saw a Sasquatch. Nope, nope, nope. I saw a big, long-legged black bear. Give me another drink of that whiskey, please. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the kind of stuff I grew up with, bush stories. And, you know, being a commercial fisherman traveling the entire British Columbia coast, you know, a lot of people think that British Columbia has the Haida Indians and Alaska has the Klingit. No. British Columbia alone has Weequaquaquiwak, New Chanleth, Homolko, Coast Salish, Hiltsuk, Hesla, Shimshan, and of course the Haidas and Queen Charlotte Islands. And then up in Southeast Alaska, you have the Southern Haida, and then you have the Klingit, and then you have the Aleut, and so forth. And, you know, there's a lot of different tribes. So when you're a commercial fisherman, you're in the beer parlors drinking with these guys. And of course, Tommy 10,000 questions. I was always asking, questions and i always ask that one question so what's your guys' stories about the sasquatch and in most cases nah i don't know anything but you had those 
oh, let me tell you about Gogit. We Haidas believe this. Or let me tell you about Nachnach. Nach. Or let me tell you about Haakwas or Steemtum. So I grew up listening to these stories from the Bushers. And with Sasquatch Island, the Facebook group that I run now and and uh, the television production company that we have, which we run under Wild Woman Productions, because I'm teamed up with Victoria Williams, who's a Dene Cree Indian from Northwest Territories, and a good friend of mine's daughter, and she's a good friend. And then Peggy, my partner, she's a shareholder. You know, I'm with a bunch of, and we have this girl who helps us out named Amanda Williams, cute-looking native girl. So a Wild Woman Productions is fitting, and it also referring to the Chonakwa and Sasquatch Island, meaning North America. You know, that's where we're going, all through North America to film people. And what I'm doing is letting people experience what I have experienced all my life, sitting there with those clam diggers and those commercial fishermen, those loggers and those bush homesteaders, and hearing those stories and seeing where they took place. Because tell you the truth, you know, the repetitive stories that we keep hearing over and over and over, they're great. I don't mean them no discredit, but they are getting dry as a popcorn fart. We need something different. And <laughs> that's what Sasquatch Island's all about. We're out there getting the new farts for everyone. We're going to go interview the Indians. And most Indians, as most non-natives know, when you go into a native community and you're not Indian, a Indian happens. Oh, you know about Sasquatch? No. Oh, do you have any stories about Sasquatch? No. Um, do you know where I can buy a Coca-Cola? Over there. You know, that's what Indians do. But do you blame us? You know, we've had Christianity shoved down our throats sideways. We've been thrown in the residential schools. We've had our territories taken away from us. So, yeah, this is a reason. But at the same turn, when I went to Omaha, Nebraska, to Macy, and I went out there with Peggy to interview these two wannabe Sasquatch investigators and met them and realized that they were full of beans, but realized that their lands are filled with Sasquatches that they call Sitonga and their native tribe has a very, very high unemployment rate, like exceedingly high with 50% of the population under 18 with a 80% unemployment rate. Like you've got to reach out and help them. So being an eco tourism operator for most of my adult life when I wasn't commercial fishing or when I was at the same time, I said, you really got to get your, tourism going you got so much opportunity you got these cabins you got along the missouri river with 62 different types of fish and my god i never knew all these fish existed and i caught a few so the tribe i sent them a proposal and three weeks later they invited me out under contract for two weeks to help them in tourism development i worked an honest eight hour day but damn i didn't sleep much out there because i was out at night sasquatch researching holy christ they got a lot of sitonga down there i saw nine of them one night on one of those little flur cameras nine probables two for sure we were not 15 20 feet from one we were going up the road and i have this uh indian guy named locust from the omaha tribe who's work part of my team now and in weird like peggy gave me this Fleur attachment that goes on your Android phone. And she said, oh, I ordered it. It cost $250. I tried it out one night outside. It didn't work very good. I could only see about 15 feet. So when I got there, the first week I was there, it stayed in my suitcase. You know, why well, hook something up that I don't really know about or need? But uh, after when I was there with this uh, one other guy, he had a 
mono fleur thing. And we saw two Sitonga, a male and a big pregnant and a pregnant female walking across a freshly planted field, but it had rained for two days before. And it was like concrete because we went back the next day to look for tracks. And I couldn't believe how hard that dirt was. It was like cement. You know, I'd never been to Nebraska before in my life. And so anyway, we saw these two. So when Lucas and I teamed up, and this is a week into my two-week period with them, I said, oh, my wife gave me this um, Fleur thing. Let's hook it up. So I hooked it up, and I said, you do the prompts. I hate downloading crap. I said, those <laughs> devices drive me nuts. So anyway, he did everything, and he goes, come check it out. So I went, and he goes, here, look. And we're looking, and we're like, holy white man's magic. Look at that. <laughs> you can even see the picnic tables. And all of a sudden, he goes, watch. And he ran across and jumped off the cement patio and he ran on the grass and he's like, look at my feet, look at my feet. And you can see his glowing footprints in the grass. And we're just like, holy, let's go in the truck. Let's go. And off we went and we weren't five minutes up the road and we come around the corner. There's headlights, two vehicles in the ditch. Now you got to remember Omaha, Nebraska, this is in June. So it's around 11 o'clock at night. That tribe has had a curfew of 11 o'clock. Everyone's indoors. They never tell you why, but no one's allowed out after 11 o'clock. Police will pull you over. I was allowed because I was doing research for tourism on doing tours for Sitonga. So we're driving up the road, and we see these two vehicles in the ditch. I'm driving the truck, and Lucas is looking out the window, and I'm going. He goes, slow down, slow down. So I'm going slow, and then I could hear the power saw. They were cutting branches in the ditch, hardwood branches. So I thought that. Who the hell would be cutting firewood this time of the year? November and uh, June, it's like bloody 97, sticky, hot out. And these guys are cutting firewood. It just didn't equate. All of a sudden, Lucas says, stop, 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 stop. And I'm like, why? And I look, and all I see on the floor is this big blue shoulder, body, shoulders, and head, and one arm up on it like a tree. I'm like, holy shit. And this other car comes behind me, and another one comes behind those guys. I'm like... This car is coming, Lucas. I gotta go. So I go past these guys and I look out and they're cutting the firewood. Yeah, two vehicles. And I go by that car and I go up the road to the stop sign, pull over. The car behind me passes me. I turn around and I come back real fast, do another U turn. I come back, slow down where we just saw this big signature. Lucas is looking at us and he's like, stop, 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 stop. It's still there. And Lucas, he goes, oh, they're watching those guys. It's watching those guys cut the firewood. So I get out of the truck and I walk around to where Lucas is. And I grab the flare and I'm holding it. And he gets out of the truck. And I'm like, what will we do? We ran towards it. He goes, well, either throw something at us or it'll run. So let's run at it. And we're just about to run. And all of a sudden that thing just turned. It's not like a D8 cat going through the bush. He goes, rogue. And so we went up the road, drove around again, saw some probables. And then we saw another one in uh, a field. He said, stop. And I got, it's on Sasquatch Island. If you scroll back to June of last year, 2017, you'll see my Nebraska adventures. Cause I posted quite a bit. You'll see the big track we plaster casted. That was huge. And uh, you'll see this one standing in the middle of a field. And you can see those big round hail bales. I guess they're about six feet high. Those big round things. I remember I'm a fisherman. I don't know nothing about hay. But those big bales of hay, and it was standing sort of off to the side of one of them. A bloody thing, big, huge bugger. And this, 
Nebraska, I learned something. I learned that I think that curfew is in place because of the Sitonga. They don't want their tribe members out on the nighttime. And those Sitonga down there are habituated. They've habituated the humans where they'll bang on the walls, throw things at them, vocalize, chirp. And the humans get so scared. Remember that old coal up the butt side turned into diamond? Humans get so scared. They And I witnessed them throwing food scraps. How we go here in Kent, Washington. Can't understand city people. Got to separate my garbage. Got to have the compost. Got to have the recycle. Like to even recycle it. Probably goes in the landfill. Then I got the garbage garbage. Then I got the wood I got to bring somewhere. That's stupid. But anyway, you got a compost bin you scrape food into. Well, out there in Nebraska, they don't have no separation of garbage. Garbage is garbage the way it should be. Got to follow as Indians. But anyway, they'll scrape food scraps into a bowl, into a bucket. And just before dark, they'll go throw it into the hardwood forest behind their house. And what's happening is those Sasquatches are coming up at nighttime and they've got circuits going. The rogues, the big lone males, they're going and hitting the prime spots. And then when the humans aren't feeding them, like this one guy said, well, our house was getting run down, so we brought in a double-wide trailer that we're in right now. But a couple nights after we had it in place, I went to work at the refinery. My wife was watching TV with the kids sleeping. That thing hit the wall so hard that the pictures banged inside. To me, I seen that those Sasquatches habituating the humans. Bang, vocalization, get close, scare them so that they get diamonds from coal or feed them. And that's what's happening. And I'm hearing it every other day. I get someone getting a hold of me now because, like you said earlier, the Sasquatch whisper. No bloody way. I ain't no Sasquatch whisper. Last thing I want is some bitches anywhere near me unless I got a video camera and a, and a flur. But uh, those things, they're smart, very smart. And when you feed them, don't feed them any chocolate. Don't feed them any cooked meat. Feed them raws. Give them stuff they're used to, like the corn, the nuts, the meat, raw fish, fish guts, and things like that. And mark my words, you'll see the patterns start to establish themselves. But put out garlic. Take your clove, smash it. Take a couple cloves, squeeze them so the smell gets out. There's three types of garlic indigenous to coastal Northwest. I can't live there and I don't know, but I hear garlic's found pretty much all over North America. So garlic, and you hear it from the other people too. Garlic is a natural, whether it be a food or a medicine, we don't know. We can only speculate. But you got to remember the Omaha Indians say that the Sitonga is the keeper of the medicine. And this is where it really instills how that's why I'm going back there. I'm going back, I'm talking to the chief and council right now about going back when the snow melts this woman i met is a medicine woman and that's where we saw she lives in a house that kind of looks like an igloo it's dome shaped out in the middle of the bottomlands they call it and i was at big elk park with 11 cabins down the road about a mile away <clears throat> but that's where we saw those two sitonga walking towards it, across that field in the direction of her house at nighttime as soon as we put the spotlight on them they turned and went for the trees away from the house but this one day i looked out of my cabin and there she was with her young little child getting filling water buckets at the spigot being an indian reserve i watched a lot of this happening and they had shower place there and you'd see native people come and have showers you got to remember that indian reserves indian reserves i grew up on them I, 
plumbings in some houses takes months to be repaired, broken windows and so forth. And they don't have the money to do it themselves. So I don't question it, but I thought well, I better go help her. She looks elderly. She's pretty hefty. So I went out, introduced myself and started helping her. We we're talking away and I wasn't there two minutes when I, that little boy looked up at me and goes, Hey, mister, you seen the big hairy man yet? And I'm like, as a matter of fact, I saw two of them two nights ago walking across that field towards that white house that looks like a igloo. Oh, that's our house. We live there. And then she looked at me and she goes, Sitonga, keep her the medicine. I'm a medicine woman. I pick medicines, plants, bulbs, roots. I put it on a table in my backyard in piles. Nighttime, they come and they push off to the one side what's not in season and they leave out what is good to use for medicine that part of the season and she goes and i leave them offerings i go oh what kind of offerings she goes oh i'll put out leftover food old bread bannock i'll make them sometimes anything i just give them offers offerings that's what they were doing they're coming to my house to look at the medicines and then take their offering so that's how nonchalant we indians are about her covered bipedal creatures i i don't think i should be even be using the term creatures because we're taught to always show them respect and give them respect that's why when i see these shows where people grab things and bang trees i think that's so disrespectful that's like running in a church and to a synagogue and start spouting off about how you should only be a Roman Catholic or like how these Muslim people come to our world and tell us how we should be following Allah. That's so disrespectful. You keep your religion in the closet in your house where it belongs, and you don't go shove it down anyone's throat. But banging on trees is just like that. So when we're taught as Kwakwakiwak, when you go in the forest and you hear wood against wood, bang, 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 bang. That's telling you stop. Turn around, go back where you came from, you hairless bipedal creature. My family's up here. We don't want you here. And you give them respect. You don't question it. You turn and walk away. When they shake bushes or throw sticks at you or roll boulders into your sea kayak camp, you give them the respect. And that's what it's all about. And that's why I don't advocate and I don't allow anyone to tree knock anywhere near me. Even if we hear a knock, which you don't hear too much on the coast, I won't knock back. Because why would you? If you're trying to investigate these things, get them a picture or flur, why would you want to bang something and say, stop, turn around, go back where you came from? I don't want to see you. Don't make sense. You know? Good point. So what other projects are you working on that you could talk about? I know you have your, your, your fishing and adventure business. And can you elaborate a little bit on that? Like, do you give Bigfoot tours? Um, I don't. It's how do you say, expeditions. So I have here in Seattle, you know, bored out of my tree half the time. You know, I work. Yeah, it's my job doing Sasquatch, Bigfoot stuff. I do native art, uh, do consulting for tourism, business development. And, you know, I do yacht maintenance and refurbishing work, um, commercial fish, do whatever. Basically, my career is me. I don't like nine to five. It's just. It's got to die sometime. There's life to live. Why the hell I'll go make some rich guy richer, you know? So I do what I do, but being a tour operator all my life doing, you know, hunting ch charters as a guide, sea kayak expeditions, 
you know, I'm one of the first people to ever do grizzly bear tours in coastal British Columbia with a boat. One of the first people to do killer whale orca tours with a boat. First one ever to incorporate Aboriginal cultural component into grizzly bears, whale watching, sea kayaking, sports fishing. So I kind of, I guess being humble, you know, but I am known as one of the pioneers of eco-cultural tours throughout coastal British Columbia. You know, I worked my way up into Aboriginal tourism, British Columbia, which is our provincial tourism body for native people. I was the one of the directors on Aboriginal tourism team, Canada, the national tourism body for getting natives involved in tourism and building the recognition for us. And I even was part at BC, Aboriginal Tourism BC. And when we helped incorporate that Aboriginal cultural component in that little event called the 2010 Winter Olympics, that was my cousin, fourth cousin who did the medals. But, uh, you know, so I'm well versed in concrete business and marketing and the Aboriginal cultural component to give yourself a marketing niche and a competitive advantage. And, you know, I'm love marketing you know it's just fun you know and yeah some people might say oh the only reason he's on podcasts is because he's advertising his tours well in all honesty peggy and i shut down Hamumu adventures which was our sasquatch tour operation because she got a raise in her career and she doesn't have any time she was pulling 13 hour days she can't come work on a website or anything or take bookings and if i'm not here so we backburnered it and i was sort of like well, I'm still going to do it because I'm still doing it in Canada. And uh, so, but I have a network of when I got sued in 2006 for defamation of character. And for those people out there that hate Tom Seward, yeah, just Google my name. You'll find it all out there. I got nothing to hide. And uh, even the burial boxes that I supposedly went into, which I wasn't, it was taken out of context. I was actually doing my watchman jobs and someone blew it out of proportion called CBC Canada. But anyway, there's a lot of stuff on the internet and, you know, I got nothing to hide. But uh, which I one share? are Can you afraid of? Huh? Oh. Some of these people asking me questions too. <laughs> and I'll get to your questions uh, as fast as I can. But with tourism... Yeah, there's a lot of people that, you know, it's one thing to sit on your backside and go to the groups and the websites and hear some of our great investigators and researchers. <laughs> I guess you're a researcher when you got a capital D, small R period before your name. Just teasing Wes Gerber. <laughs> but for all of us in the want to know, well, to go out in the bush and bang a baseball bat against a tree expecting to hear or see or smell a Sasquatch, you're not going to, it's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. But when the first explorers, Lewis and Clark, uh, Alexander McKenzie in Canada came across North America, what did they all do? They hired an Indian guide. So if you're going to look for Sasquatch, shouldn't you first research what the local Indians have to say about these creatures in your backyard? And then when you do go out there, you have a better chance of finding them. Or if all of a sudden you come to the Pacific Northwest and you're from where Dorothy was from the Wizard of Oz, Kansas, or you're from Philadelphia or Frankfurt and you're coming to the Pacific Northwest, well, I have white man's magic, the internet, you know, just get a hold of Tom Seawood, you know, for a night charge, uh, start out at $150 base rate a day. And, you know, that's for eight hours to 10 hours. You want me on overnights, it's $200 a day. And if you want to come out with your pickup truck and pick me up and we do two, three day overnight, 200 bucks, 24-hour period, let's go. We'll bring behind me tents and in the garage is kayaks and mats, and we're an outfitting company. 
So yeah, I'll take you out in Canada or the U.S. And if you, God forbid, don't want to sleep in the dirty, soggy, wet tent in the rainforest, well, I have friends with cabins, float houses, boats, yachts, resorts, you name it. I know campgrounds where I'm going to be next week on Vancouver Island, a campground that's open, but no one's there other than the watchman doing maintenance. And at five o'clock, he goes home to the town up the highway. I'll be there staying in a campground for 12 bucks a night or whatever, shower, toilet, right on the edge of a estuary of a river at low tide next week, big clam beach. So what do you got when you got estuary and clam beach and forest? Home of the Sasquatch in the wintertime. So we've had activity there, seen some sign, haven't heard or saw anything yet, but hopefully we come up with the roulette. When we put our numbers down there that night, we come up spades and we get something. But, you know, that's what it's all about. You know, it's not guaranteed. Do you, do you mind if I share the, the link to your, uh, your tourism site, your adventure? Uh, I don't even know if the website's active. The best is um, go to Sasquatch Island and I'll post something tonight or tomorrow about okay. the expeditions we do. Yeah, Sasquatch Island on Facebook. And uh, uh, we're just in the midst of Sasquatch Island's website will be up here pretty soon. But I'm so busy. I'm you know, getting people phoning me from South Carolina, from you, from wherever you're from. And I have to That's go do Google idea. overviews and be the Indian guide hunting your backyard for you, seeing why yeah. the Sasquatches are there. I truly appreciate that. Like I said to you in my reply email, there was a lot of things uh, that you had brought up that I, I, I didn't consider and things that were plain as the nose on my face that I, I just didn't even make that connection. And I, I thought it was really cool how just by using Google earth, you were able to depict some things that I didn't think about. And it's, it's, it's really cool. And I would love it if, if someday you could get out here and we could hit the, hit the woods and I could take you to some spots that I feel I had some activity and show you around. I, I'd love to see what we could kind of stir up out there. So maybe. Someday. Oh yeah. Well, like you, well, Get a hold of your local conference organizer groups in your region and say, look, you got to get Tom and Peggy out here. You know, Peggy's going to come and she'll show up wearing that big mask. That's the Junahua. And then there's, she got her big hands. I, I have the full costume picture if you want me to post that up. Oh, yeah, she'll go on stage and she'll do the Junachwa dance and the Bakus dance while I'm doing narration, talking about the creatures according to the Kwakwakiwak stories, sharing our encounters. Um, we've even got T-shirts in production, those uh, pictures I sent you of the drum with the uh, sort of hulkish-looking Junachwa I, pa I painted. And then there's the frame 52. Yeah, I have the drum up now, Tom. Yeah. And then, of course, this one, too. So yeah, I love that. That's beautiful. We're making all kinds of stuff, T-shirts and prints, pictures, so that when we go to these conferences, we have, you know, we're always giving tables, but we don't have anything to sell. So <laughs> start selling something. And, uh, you know, we do a pretty good talk with PowerPoint, everything I'm talking about and more. And, uh, you know, I know a lot of times people say, well, you're advertising for your company. Um, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, it is. I'm not going to lie. I'm, I got sued in 2006, and I lost everything I had, my tour boat, my house, my family, my sea kayak fleet, became a bankrupt Indian flat broke overnight. 
And I've been bouncing back ever since. Do I want a credit rating? Do I want a Lamborghini? No. But do I want a paycheck every two weeks to throw in my back pocket? Hell yeah. Just like anyone else. I don't want to be a welfare collecting Indian. I'll tell you that right now. So I work. And my work right now is Sasquatch Bigfoot. A lot of people say, you're crazy, Tom. Well, what do you mean crazy? That's what they said about me when I was chasing whales and putting fiberglass kayaks in the water when no one else was doing it. And chasing grizzly bears up inlets and bringing paying clients. We're dressing up like an Indian doing sports fish chargers. They called me crazy too. Well, <laughs> look at those industries now. They're multi-million dollar industries. Exactly. I know for a fact there's the other tribe out there that we call Sasquatch or Bigfoot, Sitonga, Gogeet, ah, whatever. But the well, bottom line let me, is... Let me ask, ask you this. You, you, you referred to them as another tribe. Now, what is your take on... Do you think that they're more human? Are they animal or are they like another branch of the evolutionary tree? Like what, what do you think, what is your definition of what a Sasquatch <laughs> is? They're human. And if you, a lot of people equate everything to now. So in other words, there's someone with a burqa. There's someone with a turban. There's someone with a Confederate flag. There's someone who's wearing a Native Pride Indian hat on. This is where I live in the United States. This is where I live in Canada. And that's what the equate and factor in. And, oh, there's the Hispanic people and there's the African-American. You know, that's it's normalcy. Yeah, normalcy now. But let's go back in your shoes 350, 400 years ago. And what was it like when that first Aborigine looked at that first, my God, that person looks like a maggot. Boy, he's white. And what was it like when that first Norwegian jumped off his Viking ship and all of a sudden this Indian walked out? And, oh, gee, he's got dark skin and dark eyes. And what was it like when the first explorers from England went to South Africa? They'd seen the Africans, people, different tribes all through the Morocco, right through all the parts of Africa's coastline, right through the central parts, Lake Victoria. And all of a sudden, they come to South Africa, where no one lives at the Cape, because there's too much malaria. The people knew that, except for the Bushman. He lived in the desert. And then when that first explorer got a chance to study the African Bushman, Bushwoman, the gentalia on the females was a little bit different than the other what are, we, what are we, homo sapiens or whatever? Then different than the other females found in different areas of the world. Why is it that we have different colored skin, different hair textures, skin colors? We're humans, yeah. What about Sasquatch? It's a human that didn't, you know, when you look at the Kwakwakiwak history and you look at the archaeological Holland's record and you find out that 6400 years ago the shellfish began to proliferate throughout the pacific northwest canada u.s and the same time the cedar pollen started to accumulate into the pollen record in the sediments 6400 years ago so 6400 years ago and beyond living here in the pacific northwest was like living in barrow alaska it was hostile tundra winter arctic conditions 
We have fossil records of all kinds of Arctic animals here in the Pacific Northwest found from time to time. The Kwakwakiwaks speak that in the old times, if you went into someone else's berry patch, clover patch, uh, fishing area on the river, clam beach, you could be killed and no retaliation could happen to you because you were stealing from someone's food locker. So if it was like that within my own tribe thousand years ago and beyond, right up to contact, well, it's telling us that this place was very hostile, very hard to live. And all of a sudden, this other human, who happens to be a little bit taller, decides that we don't want to live like them and use fire and tools. We're going to live like we've always lived and eat our foods raw, harvest what we need. And But every time we get near those hairless bipedal creatures, they spear us and send those arrows at us and scare us with fire and they fight in groups. But them dumb hairless buggers, they can't see at night. So instead of competing with them and being killed by them, let's harvest at night and hunt at night. Right. So all of a sudden, after thousands of years, they have the ability to see at night. Take a dog, release them into a logging road. Leave your dog out the end of a logging road. <clears throat> Two weeks later, go back. You find your dog. Hey, he's running with a wolf pack now. Didn't get eaten. <laughs> Try to call your doggy. Very mean. Doesn't want anything to do with that hairless bipedal that used to be its master. Doesn't even equate that no more because it's with the pack. How long does it take for a pink pig to turn into a wild hog? Tells I've stuff I see on TV. It doesn't take that long. No, no, so, not at all. When I go to bush and I'm out there for a couple of months, I come back in. My mom slapped me upside the head with a wooden spoon. You quit using that F word, you know, I go feral. So <laughs> look at you guys. You know, I could only wish I could grow. Actually, I don't want hairy faces Indians. We got smooth as baby's bum face. But, you know, you guys, if you didn't shave, how long does it take you to look like you guys look right now? And if I, as an Indian... I don't have facial hair. I, have, I can count how many armpit hairs I got under each arm. And I think I got three chest hairs. They didn't happen until <laughs> I was 49. But can you imagine us Indians when we saw your ancestors jumping off those ships with hairy faces? Yeah. What the hell? When did Sasquatch start using boats? <laughs> <laughs> well, there was a report of uh, a native tribe down in the uh, Amazon where I guess some film filmmakers and some scientists and explorers and whatnot a group of them had gone down and they were primarily uh a group of white people and when they went down there i guess because it's so hot and so humid a couple of the guys were at a creek and they had their shirts off so they were really white and uh this native tribe was so removed from the modern world uh that they really had no clue that anybody other than their people and surrounding tribes existed and I, I'm 99.9% .9 sure that this tribe uh, didn't even really have a true language. Like it was like partial language and more, more body language and sounds than, than a, uh, than an actual vocabulary. And when they saw these white men down at the uh, uh, river, like drinking and cleaning and stuff like that, the, it, there's a video of it. You can look it up online. I can't remember the name of it, but, uh, the uh, the native guy's eyes were so, they were like dinner place. They were so huge because after they had met and interpreted some stuff, it, they thought that the white guys were more or less, for lack of better terms, like reanimated corpses, like zombies. Because when they die, they 
turn white. You know what I mean? When you die, you lose your pigmentation, your body changes, and you go through the death process. And these, you know, tribal people were seeing these white guys walking around, and they looked like dead people, and they were scared shitless. So that's a kind of a prime example. Like like you said, if you go back, you know, hundreds of years, thousands of years to when before different races were really mixing like they are now you're you're absolutely right it it would be terrifying to see somebody completely different from what the norm is you know or what you consider the norm so yeah i, I agree I, I agree wholeheartedly and another thing too is and, and when you had said about uh back you know thousands of years a lot of the animals in the uh north in north america during the ice age and whatnot were very very hairy woolly mammoth the woolly rhino the like the cave lion all those creatures were had evolved to to handle those cold conditions so maybe a sasquatch and then this is just completely out there hypothetical maybe a sasquatch is a line of humans that had evolved like the other animals and developed such a thick coat if you will to survive such harsh climates and they just stayed that way they outlived the other species that had gone extinct because of theorized overhunting. Who's to say that they're not that race that's left behind? And you're right that it actually is a human race, just a different looking one. That's why I don't get into the DNA debate. Because number one, you know, I'm an astute follower of National Geographic. I've read from volume one right to present day school in grade eight through grade to grade 10. They had a reference library. It had all the national geographics from the first one. So I've read them and, you know, you look at national geographic, how the evolution of Lucy and other relic humanids has gone since my childhood. You look at how DNA has gone since uh, that sheep had, uh, what do you call it, uh, artificial insemination to present. And three years from now, what's out there in National Geographic and these other magazines will be totally changed again. And in the academic field, who those boys never put their balls on the table and take a stand, they always got a wishy-washy way out of things. You know, they're going to be changing their song and dance again anyway about DNA. So, And then when you're like me, who think that they're, because as an Aboriginal, that's the way we look at them. They're the other tribe. That's why we respect them. And yeah. every tribe across Sasquatch Island, North America, talks like that. So when you look at it with ingenuity, that's the way we think, because we have very well-developed frontal lobes. And when you get these other people that just contaminate everything and dilute it and speculate and jump and say it's a monkey, it's a this, oh, it's actually an alien. It comes in and out of UFOs. Oh, but no, wait, they come through a porthole. And oh, but... They'll cloak too, you know, come on, give me a break, you know, slap them upside the head with a four by four, you know, these things are natural creatures. They're bipedal. And I think they're more than likely more human than animal, but at the same turn, take a human and leave them out in a logging camp for 107 days. Like they did me. Oh, you get pretty damn feral and wild after a hundred days. I tell you, you know, so that's the way I look at it. And yeah, you're absolutely right. They've, retain their hair because in that evolutionary split to go down development path that we bipedals chose to take where we became less hairless except for you there Chad <laughs> but you know 
the other ones chose not go through the strict social structure maybe and not developing their culture as much and those are our sasquatches and of course if you're in that wild environment you need to be big you know tyrannosaurus rex wasn't the size of a rat you know he was two stories high for a reason sasquatches are one story high for a reason where we're not even half a story so you know that's the way i look at it it's ingenuity it's bush what i call bush law you know and it's like a lot the skeptics you know they when they there can't be Sasquatches. I'm just like, well, here's another one of those people that never rode the window seat in a clear day at 30,000 feet and looked down at how vast North America can oh, be yeah. and is. And uh, they tell me that there's no way they can be out there. And, you know, yeah, they're out there. And with these creatures being out there, you know, do they have a culture? Do they have language? Well, damn right they got a language because I've heard them speaking. I've heard them roar. I've heard them whoop. I've heard them whistle chirp for identification, no different than me whistling and my partner whistling or my dog coming to me. But I've heard them go into a bar and I'm like, hey, buddy, having airs, where are you? And we'll together on the shoulders. We have 20 beers together. That's the roaring part. Hey, I'm here. Where are the rest of you guys? And that's what I'm documenting is the migration patterns that are taking place in the Western Broughton Archipelago, my region of Northeastern Vancouver Island and in between and the islands between the mainland. And then when you sit there in bed with your fingers and your ears and you're hearing them chattel, chatter away. Yeah. They got a language and you hear that you watch the show. The gods must be crazy. The first one. And that little Bushman from South Africa, how he, whistle clicks chirps when he talks in his traditional language well just make it a little deeper and pretend the lips are a lip about four times bigger well you got sasquatch communication because i've heard it and so have others and people have recorded it now when we get into things like this one i watched today some guy from i think it's ontario you hear this sounds like a drunk commercial fisherman's passed out beside a dumpster you know, try to ask to be picked up, but he's too damn drunk to put words together. That's disrespectful to the creatures because anything in the bush environment wouldn't talk like a drunk commercial fisherman passed out, stuck half under a dumpster. It would be like I've heard and other people have recorded. Samurai chatter, I'm not going to get into it because I've never heard it in the wild myself. It's kind of intriguing, but uh, some of this other stuff that's on there, you know, like, I just rolls my eyes. I feel like going to find that person and smashing his computer so they can't send any more stuff like that out. So disrespectful to the creatures. And then these skeptics who live on that and dwell upon it. And half the skeptics out there are the ones putting out the BS anyway. But when the people come to me as skeptics, I always look at them. I go, do you believe in hairless bipedal humans called albinos? Well, yeah, it's scientific have a genetic split and usually interbreeding and uh there's albinos they have red eyes and they have white skin and they can't be out in direct sunlight so you're telling me albinos really exist well yeah it's scientific proof well, i've been in a lot of cities been in a lot of places 
I always sit there in human watch and I come out of bush or commercial fishing and used to sit and still do in the cities. And I just look at humans because they're funny how they dress and how they walk and how they won't look at you eye to eye. But anyway, I said, all those years, I'm 52 years old, I've never seen an albino, but I hear they exist. Guess it's like a Sasquatch, isn't it? Maybe one day I'll see one. Well, I saw my first albino here in Kent, Washington, not two weeks ago. And that was spooky. But I saw one, you know. Not a skeptic no more. Albinos really exist. <laughs> <laughs> now, one thing I want to ask you, you sent me a, a teaser link. Are you okay if I post that in the comments for people to see? And do you want to elaborate on that? You touched, you touched base a little bit on it earlier, but do you want to go in a little bit more detail on yeah. it? Or are you, are you at liberty to? Oh, yeah, definitely. We're Sasquatch Island is we're doing a television production. We're in television production documentary and a series called Sasquatch Island, where we've filmed Operation Sea Monkey a year and a half ago. We started then and we've been doing a lot more since. And what we're doing is we're documenting not just Indians. I'm focusing on Indians, Métis and Inuit, American Indians. But, yeah, if someone isn't of those cultures, by all means, be glad to shove a camera or a mic in front of your face and interview you and get your story because I'm all about patterns. I establish patterns in different areas that correlate to everything. I'm working with a lot of the Australian Yowie investigators now because there's so much parallels to what the Yowie's doing to, to the North American Sasquatch, to the Aryan Pendek and the Yeti. And God forbid, I just found out Argentina's got one running around down there. Josh Gates introduced me to it the other night. Now I got to investigate that and figure out some Spanish words and Portuguese words so I can try to track things down. But, you know, it's to me, it's my life. It's my passion. It's my love. And, yeah, it's the way I make a living. If I get invited to go talk at a conference and they pay me some honorary stipends and, you know, travel costs and accommodation, yeah, that's part of my livelihood. If people find out that Sasquatch Island's a TV show that we're doing and they say, hey, Tom, we really want to get you to, where do you live again? Les? Pennsylvania. So, you want to get me to Pennsylvania. So, I say, okay, I'll take three or four of my prints. I'll do a bunch of print run I'll mail it to you or I'll send you the files and print them out. When I get there, we'll have an autograph session. I learned this off a bunch of other of the researchers. You know, you look at this right here. They gave me this award at Creature Weekend in Ohio last uh, September when I spoke there. And, you know, they paid me like a couple hundred bucks to be there and all my expenses. But I made contacts. And now people want me to go to other states to talk and go with expeditions. So we're a community. Yeah, there's right. some of us, you know, especially the capital D, small R period before their names. They're in it for a buck. You know, Cliff Barrackman, Bobo, uh, the girl uh, that's with them, and uh, the other person. Uh, oh, Moneymaker. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Renee and Matt. Moneymaker. There you go. Oh, he's not in it for his looks, I'll tell you. <laughs> you know, it's, it's an industry. And, you know, can't keep browbeating us that are trying to make a few bucks out of it. I'm not trying to get a Lamborghini. I'm just trying to pay my bills and pay my child support and buy my Marble cigarettes and the odd bottle of wine and some Budweiser. You know, it's life. And, you know, so, you know, I got a guy that I'm working with. Uh, he's got uh, Northwest Extreme Expeditions, and I'll be posting that tomorrow as well. And they'll be on our websites when they get up and going. But the best way is join Sasquatch Island, a Facebook group. 
you're in the know. You're going to get my modern day smoke signal called the post on Facebook. And if I get thrown in a Facebook jail, uh, but, you know, but uh, the bottom line is, yeah, I do expeditions. Someone wants to do 10 people on a yacht for $2,500 a day. We got that yacht ready to go. That's the one we use in Operation Sea Monkey. You can't afford 2500 buck a day. Well, we got a smaller yacht with two staterooms, and we can squeeze six people on there for 600 a day. And, you know, if you want an open speedboat or a dilapidated older 1950s fishing boat that my cousin has, you know, he charges $250 a day, pay for his diesel so he can go and catch food fish that he brings home but gets him away from his bitchy wife. You know, I got all kinds of options. So I don't have anything chiseled in stone that this is all we do. Basically, get a hold of me. I'm going to ask you, how much can you afford? It's not being a money-grubbing pig. It's so that you can tell me the truth and go, well, there's five of us, and, you know, we're looking at $150 a day each. What does that get us? Well, they'll get you this or this or, well, this is option B, option C. I'll send you itineraries. You make your choice. It's a free market. You know, if you want warm heat or you want tents, or you want yachts, we got it all. You know, there's, you know, everyone comes out here sports fishing. They pay $600 a day to come sports fishing for a big old king salmon in British Columbia or Alaska. Why the hell wouldn't they pay the same money to come chase down a Sasquatch with us? You know? I would. (laughs) It doesn't equate when people say that you charge $250 a day. Well, yeah, didn't you just tell me you paid $650 a day to catch a spring king salmon and you only caught a pink salmon? (laughs) And you got ripped off, would you feel? Well, I'm not going to guarantee you a Sasquatch, but you're going to eat a hell of a lot of seafood. You're going to see a lot of country. And you're going to get to do like me, possibly. Stand on tops of islands, bluffs, and mountains. Put your arms out and do a 360-degree spin while you enjoy it all because you're at play in the house of the fields of our Lord. And the Creator gave it all to us. And carpe fucking diem. That's the way I live life. And that's what people come out with me for. I, I... I truly want to come out and, and, and hang with you and, and do a tour and uh, an expedition, if you will. Uh, we're, we're just got to save our pennies and we'll, we'll definitely set something up with you and come on out. Well, like I say, you got following membership. You know, what's it cost return airfare for Peggy and I to go out to where you are, you know, white man's magic, the internet chatter, chatter, <laughs> you know, Hey, look, I looked into it. If we book six months in advance, we can get the tickets for $350 return from Seattle SeaTac to our airport. We'll throw them in our spare bedroom. We'll have this big barbecue, B-O-B, B-O-B is bring on bottle, bring on beef. And <laughs> let's have a two-night, three-day weekend where Tom and Peggy are here doing the dances, sharing stories, legends. And he's going to come out and teach us some ingenuity and how to get close to these hairy buggers because he hates getting close to them. And But now it's my job. And hopefully <laughs> I'll come up spades and get them to smile pretty for me. <laughs> but hopefully don't throw a rock or a stick at me because, damn, they can throw things far and fast. <laughs> yeah. Well, Chad and I used to be uh, pretty good shot put throwers in, in high school, but I'm sure that we'll, we'll be outthrown by one of them. <laughs> Friend of in the bay, and we measured it. We figure it's 120 to 135 feet. He was from the high tide tree line on the beach to where his boat was at an anchor. The next morning, he jumped in his little boat with his female friend, ran down to my float house, come and told me. I ran up there with my speedboat with his speedboat in front of me. So we could. he didn't pull the anchor. We measured. 
and we figured it was 125, 135 feet. And there was his Dutch door, you know, a Dutch door, top and bottom open up. This thing is made of hardwood, probably oak. It's a 1940s-style commercial trolling boat, about 36 feet long. This thing is on heavy-duty brass hinges, top and bottom door. That evening, they're waiting for the coffee to perk on the oil stove, and they had the Dutch door open with a big brass latch going to the mast of the boat. And they're just BSing away, and he said he had his music playing, and there was no other boats except for one way up at the head of the bay, some 200 yards from him yacht all of a sudden kaboamo and chunks of stuff come flying in the galley the door gets knocked off its top hinge hanging there and there's this big chunk of semi-rotted driftwood five and a half feet long i measured it and that thing was five inches in diameter we call that sasquatch crease the homesteader he hangs out on three islands in the broughton archipelago and the biggest island is maybe two and a half miles long by a mile wide. So they're not that big. And yeah, Sasquatches swim. Everything fur in a heartbeat, including the damn snakes swim out there. We've got those killer garter snakes up here. But anyway, those Sas that Sasquatch lives in that area. And there's so many reports about summertime where they hear things, things thrown at them, campers being disturbed, rocks being thrown, boulders. Well, Crease is a rogue. He's been like a wolf who is ahead of a pack, got ousted. Now they got a choice. They can go, a wolf will go find another pack to mm -hmm. work his way into and then work his way up to the top of if he can. Or he becomes a lone wolf. But a lone wolf will die fast. So he goes and looks for another lone wolf to live with. They never do get close. They'll hunt together and harvest together. Or he goes and looks for a big old grizzly bear that's getting old, abscessed in the teeth, blind, arthritis up. And there's pictures on the internet of that guy in Finland taking pictures of a wolf and a big dominant grizzly together. I've seen it. I got pictures of tracks of them together. So that's what the wolf has a choice to do. Now, the rogue Sasquatch, they'll, I think they just make the choice of the hell with it. I don't want to compete no more. Like me, I got my butt sued. I had to declare bankruptcy. I became a flat, broke, no credit rating Indian. And two years later, I went to get released from bankruptcy and court. And there's those two SOBs that sued me from two kayak companies, one from the States, one from Canada. And they contested it. The judge said, you're going to be a bankrupt for another year and a half. Boom, that comes down the gavel. I left and I said, that's it. I don't ever want to be a white man again. I don't need a bank account. I don't need a credit rating. I don't need to file no Revenue Canada income tax. I'm just going to live my life until I die. I'm going to be an Indian. I'm not going to try to be on, no offense, Whitey's radar again with a credit rating. And I've been doing it ever since. And you know what? I've never been happier. I had two heart attacks five years ago. I haven't even sucked on my nitro sitting above me in the last two and a half years. Why? Because I don't have any stress. I'm living a rogue's life. And sometimes... Us humans, whether they're the big hairy ones or us hairless bipedals, especially us really hairless Indian bipedals, sometimes we just want to be a rogue. And you know what? It's fun. Yeah. Amen to that, I tell you. But, well, we are two hours into our show, and I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to to talk with us and share your stories and share your information 
it was a blast. I've heard you a few times, uh, like I said, on different podcasts. Your stories, just your personality, the way you tell a story, you're such a cool guy. And I had to have you on the show. And and thank you Thanks. so much. I, I totally appreciate it. Is there anything else you want to talk about or or, or are you uh, – Until I get the websites up, the best thing is, you know, keep in touch with you. You know, I'll be keeping in touch with you as well um, with your Facebook group as well. There's a big announcement coming. i got to be tight-lipped about it. Um, mm-hmm. thing until let me look at my calendar on the 25th two Sundays from now three Sundays from now there'll be a big announcement coming out and then four days a few days later something else is going to come out and then on March 7th I'll be coming out live on something it's going to be huge and that was great I can't say too much right now but I'm definitely going to get a hold of every podcaster that I've been on, you included, and so that your members can be participate in this when we, when I come and participate with you more. Sasquatch you Islands, the Facebook group, um, join it. Ask to join, and uh, please don't come on there with any religious statements. Yeah, I know I've been plugging Christianity and Muhammad and a few things tonight. It's all in jest. Um, I am an Anglican. I am not saved, but I am an Anglican. I go to church, not as often as I should, so no need to shove a Bible down my throat sideways. Be cool on Sasquatch Island. Have fun. Ask questions. Enjoy the comments. I don't allow posting because there's enough groups out there that do repetitive posts. I don't need to do it. It's all about you'll see when you join it. I'll keep you up to date with everything. And uh, I also post on... uh, ICRA, International Crypto Research Association. It's a new group I'm a director of, but we have a group called the Western Canada Bigfoot Society. Um, it's on there. Someone can just text me or message me. I'll get it out to you. Sounds good. But, you know, let's all be safe out there. Let's all communicate with one another. And for those that want to wine, watch out. There'll be a five-pound blunk of cheese coming at you because you should have some cheese with your wine if you wine to me. And uh, we're going to find it. This is the year, 2018. There's so many pictures out there and video. We'll get it. We'll bag and tag that big hairy bugger. That sounds that sounds great. Well, again, Tom, thank you so much. And on behalf of Chad and myself, you know, we want to thank you again for being part of the show. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in and listening tonight. Uh you know, share the show, let your friends see it. So that way they could pass along Tom's information and, and learn more about him and his stories. So other than that, I just want to wish you a very good night and thank you again so much for joining us. Yep. Before I say goodbye in my language next time, don't let Chad talk so much. I know. <laughs> Believe it or not, this is like the first episode where I really didn't have to say anything but the intro. So I'm, actually just, I'm sitting here enjoying all this. <laughs> Okay, well, you have fun. I'll see you guys and talk to you again in the language of my people. Alakulisla. Go in peace. Thank you very much. Thank Thank you, you, Tom. Good night.